Welcome to the second episode of Narrative for Social Justice podcast, or for short, the N4SJ podcast. This podcast is part of the larger Narrative for Social Justice initiative, which emerged from the International Society for the Study of Narrative. I'm Torsha Ghoshal, an assistant professor of English at California State University, Sacramento. My areas of research include narrative theory, cognitive cultural studies, global anglophone literature, experimental narratives, digital media, and multimodality. I'm the author of a monograph, Out of Mind, Mode, Mediation, and Cognition in 21st Century Narrative, forthcoming from the Ohio State University Press. I'm also a creative writer. My experimental novella, Open Couplets, was published by Yoda Press India. As a literary critic and writer hybrid, working transnationally, I remain interested in the relationship of creative and critical writing. I'm a member of the N4SJ podcast group and your host for today. Our guests for today are members of the podcast team themselves, Carolyn Giboa and Gretchen Bussell. Carolyn and Gretchen, could you introduce yourselves? Yes, thank you. My name is Caroline Gebauer. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Narrative Research at the University of Wuppertal in Germany and a teaching assistant at the university's Department of English and American Studies. My PhD thesis, which has just been published with De Gruyter, explores the various uses and functions of present tense narration in the 21st century novel, as well as the effects that the use of the present tense can have on the process of narrative world making. I've just started working on a second book project, The Cultural History of the Representation of Mobility Across Media, and this research undertaking is closely related to a larger interdisciplinary and intercultural project that I'm currently involved in, and that's a Horizon 2020 project on narratives of migration, which is funded by the European Commission. I'm a member of the executive team of Die Jesus, that's an open access e-journal for interdisciplinary narrative research, and like Portia and Gretchen, I'm a member of the N4SJ podcast group. I'm Gretchen Biesel. I am an associate professor of English at Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. I'm the graduate program coordinator for our MA in English and our PhD in rhetoric. My primary research interests and teaching interests combine narrative studies, rhetoric, gender studies, world literature, primarily global. I also work a lot in graduate student professional development and in the public humanities. I am working on a book about global novels and uh, explicit audiences and storytellers. I am, of course, a member of the N4SJ podcast team. I'm also a member of the, the International Society for Study of Narratives, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Thank you, Carolyn and Gretchen. In today's episode, we will respond to four broad questions, use them as a way to think about the commitments of this podcast, as well as our interests as scholars and teachers. The questions we hope will prompt further discussion. The questions we are using as our prompts are, what does social justice mean to each of us? How does our work engage with narrative and social justice? Why is it important for the study of narrative and narrative itself to engage with issues of social justice? What is narrative for social justice? Narratives that work towards or long for social justice? So, Carolyn, if I may start with you and the first question, what does social justice mean to each of us? A simple question, really. <laughs> yes, thanks, Sorsha. Yeah. 
I didn't find it a simple question, to be honest. So <laughs> when I prepared I for this podcast and thought about what social justice means for me, uh, I found it very difficult to to answer because yeah, I think everyone has an idea of what social justice means to them, right? But um, I think that once we try to come up with a clear-cut definition, it, get, it gets very complicated because it's very, very likely that you exclude somebody even if you only do it unintentionally. When I think about what social justice for me, I would always say that it's based on the principles of fairness and inclusivity. And this is what makes it so difficult to define, because if you would like to come up with a clear-cut distinction, I think it's always there's always the danger that you exclude somebody or some perspective that you did not actively think about, even though you do not want to exclude this perspective. So when I think about social justice, I usually tend to approach it by a negative definition because sometimes I think that it's much easier to identify what is socially unjust than pointing your finger on things that are fair or just. So so I think that for me, social justice or it requires a sort of activity on the part of everybody because I think when we talk about social justice, it's not just up to one group to make sure that a society is based on the principles of social justice, but it's up to everybody and everyone has to be included and everyone has to be able to participate. Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. I like how you began defining social justice from a specific location rather than making sweeping, universalizing gestures. I think that helps with a topic as broad as social justice. And I was just only joking when I said it's a simple question. <laughs> Gretchen, what would your approach to social justice be? I also think it's 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 a fairly difficult word to define for me, especially when you try to quantify it as a noun, right? What it what is this thing that is social justice? So I sort of I default to thinking of it more of an as an adjective, right? You know, and and you know what is what are social justice issues, and you know what does social justice action look like, right? Uh, so you know, doing social justice work to me means, you know, working to advance equality and accessibility, right? And sometimes that's in the form of critique and sometimes that's in the form of crafting new narratives, right? But Caroline brought up a good point that made me think about, you know, social, there's a, there's an adjective with an adjective there, right? Social justice and the social part is really critical to it, that it's a collaborative effort that it's a community, right, engagement, and it has to be of the community and for the community at the same time. Yeah, there are several sides to this question. One is, of course, what an ethics of social justice looks like, but also whenever I think of social justice, I think of it in a more political than ethical vein. So to me, social justice entails a shift in relations among people and institutions with the goal of building inclusive and equitable communities. Shifts need to happen at the level of public policy, legislation, and we also need economic transformation. I do not imagine homogeneous strategies for building just societies, 
but eclectic ways. Nonetheless, social justice related work, I believe, is work that is always looking towards the future and requires us to challenge repressive violence on historically marginalized communities perpetuated by various mechanisms of social control. When I think of shift or challenge, I'm thinking of them transnationally, given that a lot of repressive violence happens at borders, both international borders, but also other kinds of bounding lines caste, class, race. We have to be able to reimagine our organizations as well as, I think, metaphors we use to organize knowledge, organize how we apprehend one another, our ways of knowing, to be able to build the kinds of just societies that social justice-related work intends to do, I think. It is about creating a more inclusive world, but how we go about it is necessarily going to be a complex process. So I think that is a great place to start talking about how we approach social justice or engage with social justice in our work as academics, scholars of narrative, students of narrative, and also professors. You just made me think of the systems, right, that social justice work needs to, must critique, change. Language is one of those systems, of course. And that's part of what I think we do. You know, my personal approach to narrative, because I work in a department which offers a PhD in rhetoric, is really rhetorically grounded. So always thinking about how is language used for an end? Language is a means to an end, to do something, to make something, to change something. So to me, that there's the natural connection between between narrative and examining, critiquing, and changing language to make effect for, for social justice. It, for me, it's primarily in what I teach. I work at a, it's a doctoral institution, but we have heavy teaching loads, lots of administration and, and committee work. My focus is generally on my students. A lot of my research comes out of working with them, let's say. And I primarily teach world literature, contemporary literature is where I usually focus. Last semester, I did contemporary migration narratives. This semester, I'm doing uh, BIPOC speculative fiction. These are things that are really obviously easily just thematically <laughs> connected to asking questions about equity and systems of power, accessibility, so and so forth. But in my mind, the social justice work that I can do with my own knowledge isn't and shouldn't be limited just to the classroom or to research to academic scholarship. I try as as I can to sort of engage in scholar activism through the form of public humanities work so that these notions that we in the academy bring to bear right on social justice issues can be accessible to public things like doing TEDx talks and, you know, uh, discussions at libraries and writing opinion pieces for public consumption, which I know Tor should also do. <laughs> which I love. So yeah, for me, it's it, it's this idea of narrative as a discipline and narrative theory is a, you know is a set of critical tools that I think are really useful. We, we have them and we can share them with students and the public as well as with each other. 
Thank you, Gretchen. I really like what you said about teaching and also you point out how we tend to default to this false dichotomy between academics and community, as if academia is not part of the community and community is not part of academia, right? Carolyn, your thoughts? Yeah, maybe I could just comment on what Gretchen just said about the rhetoric, the relation between narrative and social justice, because that nicely fits right now. So I also think that what the study study of narrative can, well, I think it's so important that the study of narrative engages with issues of social justice because there are so many narratives circulating in our world and not all of these narratives are good. And I think that narrative theory gives us somehow a lot of concepts and analytical tools that we can use in order to make sense of these narratives and to analyze them. And Gretchen, you, you mentioned the, the keyword rhetoric, right? So that helps us to understand the rhetoric and how these narrative works. And I think um, that narrative theory is very important in this respect because it might help us understand the subtexts of, of a narrative because not every narrative is very straightforward right but but the actual message is, is hidden in, in metaphors for example or in tropes and um well, I, I personally always try to approach narrative from the positive perspective and asking myself, okay, what can narrative fiction, for example, teach me? What can I learn from it? How can it help me to become a more open-minded and, and reflexive person? But of course, narrative can also be used to negative ends and for negative purposes. And um, so there's also a danger there. And this is also what I always try to teach my students or what I try to show them when I teach narrative to students. Because most of the students that I have in my classes, they would like to become teachers one day. And I think it is so important that they understand how discourses in the public sphere work and, and how, how we could make sense of it and how they can critically challenge these discourses. Everything you said speaks really well to the concerns that Gretchen raised. And I really liked you mentioning that narratives are not these monolithic things which can be deployed to only one end, which is instructive or productive or positive, whichever way you put it. The fact that so much of discrimination, so much of repressive violence can be engendered through narratives, narratives that are revisionist of histories of particular identities, hyper-nationalist narratives. So yes, I really appreciate you bringing up the, the really complex uh, creature that narratives are and what they can do to us. Nonetheless, let's revisit that question about how your work specifically engages with social justice. Well, my, in my PhD project, I uh, very much focused on the form of narrative. So because I had a look at an aesthetic feature, right, the present tense, and now I have shifted my focus a bit more to the cultural purpose and the social function of narrative. In this context, I'm having a look at the representation of mobility across different media, and that relates to what Gretchen said when you said you taught a, a class on migration narratives. So I have a look at how mobility is represented, not necessarily in, uh, in narrative fiction, but also in non-fictional narratives, for example, autobiographies and life stories, as well as how mobility is represented in film and other media. When I think about this topic, I very often encounter that the question of social justice is very much related to the question of mobility, because when you think of mobility, questions that always arise are who is allowed to be mobile, right? Who's allowed to travel across borders? Torsha, you mentioned that, that a lot of social injustice happens at the threshold of borders, right? So who is allowed to travel? Who's allowed to leave a country in order to, to go to another country? Who 
has the ability to do so in the EU project that I'm part of. So this Horizon 2020 project, that's a cooperation of different European and African um, universities. And we're also closely collaborating with NGOs. And our ideas or what we're actually looking at is how is migration represented in European public discourses? So what kind of narratives of migration are circulating in the public sphere within Europe. And what is so interesting here is that politicians or everybody basically, they just, they always talk about migrants, but the migrants themselves, they do not really get a voice and they're not really included in this discourse. So here the question of social justice is very important because not everyone is included in the debate. And our aim in this project is that we, we come up with new discourse roles and that we try to establish discourse roles that help everyone to be included. So our idea is that we also try that we try to take every perspective into consideration because if you think of the, the difference between the European perspective and for example an African perspective on migration I mean this is very interesting because from a European perspective you very often have this narrative okay we have so many refugees how should we handle that what should we do right so it's always a narrative about risk and insecurity whereas if you approach the, the subject from an African perspective it's much more about opportunity right and what can mobility mean for somebody? What kind of opportunities come out of that? Right. And the word risk also means a different from different perspectives. So if we look at the risks refugees take in seeking out those opportunities or sometimes uh, fleeing persecution of different kinds, it's okay. an entirely different kind, different scale of risk we are talking about. Yeah, exactly. The shift in your thinking from formal to social function that you just mentioned, I see in my own thinking as well. So my research is still concerned largely about aesthetic experiences. The question how my work engages with social justice, thus is also to me a question about the relation of aesthetics with frameworks of justice, how the complex web of relations among the human, the non-human, and various institutions can be envisioned, examined, and transformed through art in art. I think it helps for me to answer the question with reference to specific projects, just the way you did, Carolyn. A guiding question for my soon-to-be-published monograph, Out of Mind, is what is the relationship between aesthetic presentation of thought in contemporary fiction and scientific conceptions of cognition? The question allows me to explore naming and modeling of cognitive differences, for instance, identification of certain ways of thinking as atypical or deviant in popular and scientific discourses. I follow debates on memory, perception, abstraction to address how stories not only reflect historical contingent beliefs about how minds work, what consciousness is, but also help envision alternatives to repressive modes of knowledge production about minds. So I guess I'm interested in how narratives and narrative scholarship can afford us ways of imagining and interacting that do not default to framing or colonizing an other. Since I'm thinking of social justice in the context of academic systems, and academic work, I remain interested in the politics of naming objects, forms, 
but also locations from where naming and theorization happens, whose theories we build on, what can be changed and challenged in that practice. I remember in the first grad seminar I took on narrative theory, I was writing a response paper to build on some existing concepts to describe a feature I was noticing in contemporary films. The professor, it was actually Professor David Herman, he told me I should name what I was describing, come up with a name. And then he joked that narratology is particularly interested in naming. So to be a narratologist, I need to name a few things. Oh, and yes. <laughs> and I often think of that uh, much more cr critically now that, you know, when you're doing narratology, whose names and labels we keep on using and whose gets sidelined. So I guess one example that's high up on my mind right now, just because I was working on it recently, is this term autofiction, for instance. We talk about autofiction in narrative theory as well as in popular criticism because it's the genre of 21st century, it seems. And a colleague of mine pointed out to me this term biomythography, which Audre Lorde used to describe her book, Zami. I was surprised that when we discuss whether autofiction is the right term to talk about certain kinds of books or not, and different kinds of other terms and labels are proposed, biomythography rarely comes up. It is possible that biomythography does not describe what some of the autofictions are trying to do. But even so, why is it not a concept that is discussed? Why is it a concept that is sidelined? Why is it so easy for us to go to a French novelist, Dabrowski, to look for the genealogy of form rather than go to Lord for it, for instance. This is the kind of politics I have become more and more interested in, self-reflexive work on theorization within narrative theory. We have already started answering another question that is on our table today, why we think it's important for the study of narrative and narrative itself to engage issues of social justice. I think I can connect what you were just saying about sort of social function of narrative for fairly easily to that because you know when I think about what you know what's really critical why am I so invested in narrative study part of it's easy in the sense of I think of you know well narrative is our dominant way of knowing and being in the world and shouldn't we expend the energy <laughs> to understand it and to help others understand it for me it's sort of the notion of there it's about empowerment and empowerment is a, is a social justice activity taking control of your own narrative and taking control of, you know, to go back to Caroline and talking about the constructions of mobility and migration narratives, it's about who is telling the narrative? Are we constructing a narrative about the refugees or the, you know, or are they constructing their own narratives? But to go back to the idea of, you know, there, I think there's sort of a tension because the three of us all in some way implicitly sort of acknowledges there's a tension between sort of the theoretical aesthetic abstract study of narrative and then the real lived experience of, of those of us who enact narrative as a way of moving through the world. Yeah, I thought maybe for a second we could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even the academic system of we have all these tools, and it's very common in narrative theory to talk about tools and toolbox. Often we do so without asking 
well, who created this tool? What is the history of this tool? Is it really helping us in the way we want to be helped right now, given the specifics that you yes. mentioned, Gretchen? Gretchen just reminded me of, of how I experienced narrative exactly because when I started studying literature, so in the introduction to literary studies, you get to know all the, well, the toolbox Torsha just mentioned. You get to know the toolbox. And or what I was told as a student, the first thing was, okay, well, what you learn in school is not necessarily correct. The teachers in school always ask you, what's the intention of the author? Forget about that. And then you, you learn all the, the, you get to know all the models, right? The communication model of narrative. And this is, of course, also something that I do when I teach freshmen, trying to explain to them that we should not equate the narrator with the author because the narrator, of course, is just a textual construct and it's not the author speaking. But I think this is just a first step to, to make students understand how our toolbox works and, and how the system of fiction works, that you have this kind of double communicative situation. But then, oh, I love contextualist narratology, not just structuralist narratology. You not just have a look at text, but you try to make sense of the form and you try to, to explore the meaning of form. So, so what does it mean if you have a, an intercultural novel, for example, that makes use of multi-perspectivity? It's not just that you have different narrators, but the idea is everyone gets a voice. And one of my favorite examples, uh, that's an intercultural novel by Nadim Aslam. It's a, he's a British Pakistani writer and the novel is called Maps Follows Lovers. It's about a Pakistani community living in, in England and every of the main characters gets a voice. They're not the narrator, but you, you, get, you get an insight into all of the characters' minds. The novel really invites you as the reader to, to make the effort to try to understand every one of them. The, the novel really encourages you to take their perspective. That's when I think about contextualist narratology or the question of what can narrative theory actually do. So it's not just about the form. It's not just about the fact that this novel uses very different perspectives, but it's actually the reason why the novel makes use of these perspectives, because it's actually that the, the novel fosters intercultural understanding because it really invites you to take a different perspective and understand a different culture. I think what you're talking about, especially in the context of Pakistani community. It is not only a matter of, I think, including different perspectives and therefore allowing the reader to see difference and dialogue and so on, but also there is something to be said about how particular cultures function and their relationship to the idea of a community. Again, not to make a super sweeping gesture here, but in the South Asian communities that I have lived and grown up in, there is a different kind of understanding or approach to community living than I have seen ever since I have moved to the US. I believe that there is a definite purpose to shaping the narrative a particular way, given a particular context, given culture. You know, in narrative theory, going back to that idea of tools that Gretchen also brought up, we also need to remember that these tools are not neutral because these tools were devised or made out of studying a particular kind of corpus of texts. Right. So the corpus that was chosen that gets chosen over and over needs to be questioned too because we cannot dismantle the tools unless we have a different kind of approach to the corpus. 
going back to what you were saying, Carolyn, the novel you're describing, for instance, a novel like that, for the most part, would not be one of the example to come up with the kinds of tools we are most accustomed to. And so in a way, what you were doing is not only reading narratives in context, but from what I'm understanding, you're also trying to change the nature of example texts that go into the creation of particular kinds of narrative theories. I mean, this is this is not unique to narrative, of course. So many of, you know, the critical theories that as academics we employ, they all have histories and they're all genealogical in a way. They evolve over time. And as you were saying, some are, you know, rejected and accepted. And, and you know, why do we use this term instead of that term? The thing that drives my students absolutely the craziest is why are there five words for the same thing? Or why are there six definitions? <laughs> that contradict each other. And so I I think there is in a way like an like a social justice ethic to that and being very transparent as scholars about knowing the history of our field and its implication. Uh, another thing to, for me is formal narratives aren't necessarily the only place that we can apply some of the things that we theorize about in narrative studies. Things like possible world theory and, you know, unnatural narratology shouldn't just be applied to text. It can be applied to the other narratives that we construct, even sort of like the self-narratives we construct, right? And mentioning actually unnatural narratology reminds me of the same notion that these sort of theories are subjective and the idea of who gets to decide what is natural and what is unnatural should be something that we examine rather than take for granted. Yes, the fact that some of these terms or tools have become so naturalized or internalized, not only within academic studies, but also just in popular culture, uh, people use certain terms uh, from narrative, narrative theory, and they do not always acknowledge or just forget because it has become second nature, common sense, that these often came from studying, again, a particular kind of corpus and then use these terms to describe narratives, even formal narratives coming out of other cultures and cultural histories. By other, I mean in this context, say, non-Anglo-American narratives, and then evaluate or understand the aesthetic of those narratives using a framework that those narratives were not trying to fit into anyway. And that is another problem because then criticism sometimes enacts a kind of violent repression because now the evaluation is that, oh, this author did not know how to handle point of view just because of my knowledge and grounding in South Asian history and South Asian storytelling a little bit, you know, what we call self-reflexive or metafiction in postmodernism, that is such an integral part of cultural storytelling. We have in narrative poems and epics, author figures who are always inserting their own comments, inserting their own interests and person and so on and so forth. I think it is a problem if some Something like that is described using the language of postmodernism as though that's what the text was going for or the story was going for. And it is a kind of violent repression, according to me, which a lot of scholars and students of narrative enact. This is something I have become conscious of more and more, because I believe when I started out as a student, I was not very different. I was following a particular kind of training and I was trying to describe everything using the tools, but I'm just learning how not to do that. That really reminds me about the fact that 
you know, we often, we focus on fiction, it's aesthetic function, it's social function, but really have to remember the material conditions of the production and circulation of fiction and that it is part of a, a capitalist system of, you know, exchange, right? Global exchange now. There is a lot about these established norms that dictate what's going to be popular, what's going to be sold, what's going to be read, and how people are going to read it. Last semester, my students really disliked a number of the novels that we read because they were just too aesthetically different from the texts that are sort of produced as sort of like part of the dominant culture. And, and that kind of repeats the, the structures and the forms that they have come to, 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 to accept as sort of satisfying to them, right? And so they're reading texts that are really hard and they're sort of wondering, not only only is the content difficult to grasp because it's a place and people who are different from me, but the structure and the style is as such that I am struggling through this. It sort of made me think we can get through this together because we're in a classroom situation. But but what does that look like for readers who don't have the guide and this really transparent discussion about why they're discomfited by these structures? Right. So if it was not a classroom setting, probably you could imagine a reader on Goodreads typing away, I could not relate to the style or I exactly. felt very alienated reading this and never pausing to think, okay, you felt alienated. So what? Has fiction promised to let you consume without feeling alienated? Are you supposed to know everything and those kinds of things? So as teachers, I think it is really a wonderful privilege, perhaps, to be able to do that, uh, initiate that kind of discussion. Carolyn, do you have any experience of teaching these kinds of narratives or talking to students about them and facing any kind of pushback or, you know, any yeah. kind of insights that come from discussion? Yeah, I have a similar experience like the both of you and what Gretchen just said. So if it's if it's unfamiliar, at first it's very uncomfortable, right? It's difficult, you have to make an effort and, well, the first responses are usually, wow, I wouldn't have read that in my free time. <laughs> but then at the end of the seminar, very often... Sometimes I get the impression that the students appreciate that they had effort. And that's that's an interesting um, perspective that, that Gretchen just offered us, that also structure or form can be strange at the beginning or somehow might at first exclude people, right, or readers. But if, if you invite them in, in the classroom session, you do that and you say, okay, that we'll do that together. And afterwards, they said, okay, it, it was worth it. I'm a reader. When I start reading a book and I don't like the first 50 pages, I'm very often like, okay, should I continue? Continue. But there are a lot of books that got me after page 150, for example, and then I was really happy <laughs> that I did not follow my first instinct. Sometimes we tend to be biased. We also have this perspective when we start reading literature or watching a series on Netflix. Absolutely. Speaking of readership and reader taste, there is something to be said of who can afford to be provincial with their taste of literature and who cannot. I was educated in a system in South Asia, in India. I grew up reading a lot of Anglophone fiction, mostly from the UK or the US. And so I I was reading about places where I have never been, characters undergoing life experiences that, at least on the surface, were not like mine. And yet I was not allowed, academically at least, and otherwise even, I guess I internalized it to say, uh, well, I'm not going to engage with Faulkner because it just doesn't speak to my experience. 
or I will not engage with a particular kind of writing because I cannot relate to this character. And yet, when I came to the US, it was really fascinating for me to see that this kind of discourse not only exists, but is thought legit. That is why whenever we are talking about taste, I also think about who gets to have taste and who doesn't even have the choice. It's like, yeah, you have to read British and American fiction because that's all we have on the curriculum here. We are coming to the end of our podcast. We have one more broad question to tackle. I think we have answered parts of it. What is narrative for social justice? How do you understand that question? understand the preposition for in that question? If you approach it from a thematic perspective, I would say that narrative can do a lot if it's used for the right ends, right? You can achieve a lot when it comes to social justice if you tell the right stories and if you, you pursue the right ends with these stories. So I'm, I'm just thinking of a book by Ola Rabeck. It's called British Multicultural Literature and Superdiversity. And in the last chapter, she says that, or she concludes that the public good of literature actually is that it can contribute to public discourses on migration and multiculturalism. And also think of work in the field of narrative empathy, perspective taking. You know, and, and being posed the question, you know, what is narrative for social justice, or even just thinking about the, the narrative for social justice initiative we have within the narrative society. To me, that because it comes from the society, I think I'm initially attaching it, of course, to what can this discipline do? You know, narrative empowerment is about helping people understand the effectiveness of narratives. So many narratives are successful because they correspond. And there's a certain work within the system to change the system. You can tell a story and it can be extraordinarily ineffective because there's the story and then there's the discourse. There's the story and there's the package. So to empower those who are working towards equity and justice to understand what makes narratives successful and how they might approach their audiences since you brought up the society and, again, the academic discipline from where we're speaking, uh, even though we are also speaking to and from within particular communities, I think right now I also think a lot about narratives around humanities. We are in the middle of a pandemic and there are repercussions, economic repercussions all over, but also perhaps more so in the case of humanities. And then we log into academic Twitter, then we see that people are proposing, okay, what narrative to tell about humanities so that budgets are not cut or right. whatever. And since we are talking about social justice, a deep sense of injustice that we need to address within academics is the reliance on adjunct labor, exploitation of labor in the name of budget cuts. So with that said, we are at the end of our podcast. It would be remiss of me not to plug the International Society for Study of Narrative Conference, which will be happening May 19th to 23rd, and we will have observer passes. So even if you aren't actually presenting, we would love to invite people to just participate by observing and getting to know more about the society. And my Twitter handle is Dr. Busel, if you would like to follow me. All right. Thank you, Gretchen. I would like to plug my new book. It is called Making Time, World Construction in the Present Tense Novel, and it has just been published with De Greuter in the Narratologia series. And I would like to share my Twitter handle with you if you would like to follow me on Twitter. 
It's C A R O underscore G E B A U E R. I'll plug my book, like Carolyn's.、Um, my book is called Out of Mind, and it should be out in fall 2021. My Twitter handle is Thorsa T O R S A G. We would also like to invite you to follow the Narrative for Social Justice initiative on Twitter. Our handle is at Narrative the number four. Sj. You can also find us on Facebook. Our Facebook group is called Narrative for Social Justice. Next time, we'll continue our conversation on narrative and social justice with new guests. Thank you for listening to this episode of the N4SJ podcast. If you have comments, feedback, suggestion, please write to us at narrative4sj at gmail dot com. Thank you. <laughs>